You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I am thrilled to welcome to Stanford Susan Gregg Coger. She is the co-founder and chief creative officer for Modcloth. And this started out with her own passion for clothing and especially for vintage. And so in 2002, she and her boyfriend, who became her husband, decided to start a company. Um, this company has devoted community of customers all around the world. And Susan told me that today she's going to focus on three things. First is finding the emotional core of your work as an entrepreneur. Second is embracing inexperience and the rookie mindset when starting a company. And third is how challenges can provide new ways to discover new paths for venture growth. We're really delighted to have you here at Stanford. Welcome. Hey, everyone. This is really an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I heard that this is the last lecture series of the semester, and I know you guys are like going into finals. I definitely remember what that feels like. Um, so I really appreciate you guys taking the time and coming out. Um, and I'd love to answer some questions at the end. So please, like, I keep that keep those coming. Um, like, keep thinking about them as I'm presenting. Um, for those of you that don't know about ModCloth, I saw that there were maybe a few hands that didn't go up. Um, we're an online retailer of women's fashion and decor. We carry um, independently designed items and we design our own lines in-house. We have about 7,500 items on the site. Um, these are from designers based around the world. And, you know, I think that our customers would tell you that we have some of the coolest product that you can't find anywhere else. But... I think they would also say that we are more than cool product. We've really built a name for ourselves in putting our community at the center of everything that we do, um, which is pretty innovative for a fashion retailer. Like traditionally, fashion is very tops down. It's sort of like we tell you what's cool, and then you buy it and you wear it, and then we tell you what's cool you know, next week, and then you buy it and you wear it, and it's like constantly this cycle. It's been like this very like a lot of businesses that have been interrupted by, you know, the technology changes that have happened um, in the last 10, 15 years. Very tops down, very hierarchical. And we've sort of flipped that pyramid. Like we've said that we want to put our community at the center of everything we do. We want to empower her to help us pick the products that we sell on our site. She actually helps us design some of the products that we sell on our site. Um, she helps us merchandise them by taking outfit photos. She leaves really detailed reviews to help other community members find the right fit and enhance their shopping experience. Um, and, you know, I could, like, describe our customer to you, and, you know, like, in demographics and psychographics, like, she's in her 20s and 30s. Um, like, our age range is kind of 18 to 35, but it goes below that and it goes above as well. The average age of our customer is 27. Um, but... I think that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So like this is her, this is our community, like this is kind of the best way to get a sense of what our brand is and what ModCloth is. To give you a sense of our scale quickly today, um, we now have a team of over 350. Um, we're based in three offices across the country. Our headquarters are here in San Francisco, which is where I live. 
Pittsburgh has our fulfillment and distribution. We do all of our product photography there as well. Um, I'm a Carnegie Mellon alum. So I'll talk more about Pittsburgh a little bit later in the presentation, why Pittsburgh is a city specifically is on this list here. Um, and our buying office is in Los Angeles, and our in-house design team is there as well. So I spend a lot of time with our team in LA developing and designing the products and picking the products from the market that we sell to our customers. Another way to get a sense of our scale, like these are some of our followers on social networks. Like we're one of the highest followed retailers on Pinterest. I think that probably makes a lot of sense when you think about our community that I just showed you. Like it's, it's a pretty good fit there. Um, you know, other than these numbers, right? Like I'd say, you know, we shipped close to 2 million orders last year. Like it's, it's definitely come a long way from, you know, when I started at 17 in my parents' living room. And I won't spend a ton of time on this, but I wanted to just kind of run, uh, run through our kind of founding story and like how ModCloth came to be. Um, you know, honestly, like, I don't know that I was a born entrepreneur. Like, I've, I wasn't that girl that was, like, selling lemonade, you know, as soon as I could and, like, trying to employ my friends to, like, make an extra buck. But I'm absolutely an entrepreneur through and through. Um, and that's one thing that I would, like, love to share with you guys, like, if you could take something away from this. Like, there is no right way to be an entrepreneur. You know, as I've gone through this journey and as I've had the incredible opportunity to meet so many other amazing entrepreneurs. Like, yes, there are those born entrepreneurs who, when you hear their stories, you're like, oh my God, like you basically, as soon as you could talk, you were trying to sell something and to start a business. Um, and that's amazing and I really respect that. But you can come to entrepreneurism, you can find your entrepreneurial path in many different ways. Um, and I think that I'm proof of that. So for me, it starts with, my passion for fashion and just loving clothes. I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit it. It might sound unintellectual, um, but I've always liked getting dressed. And it's always something that I was drawn to and I was passionate about and I had an eye for. Um, I didn't have a ton of um, disposable income growing up. So I started shopping at thrift stores and vintage stores. Like basically I wanted to be able to stand out and I wanted to be able to buy things that other people wouldn't have. And you know, the intersection of those two things, like a little bit of disposable income and wanting to stand out, led me to vintage and thrift store shopping. I grew up in South Florida, um, in a suburb near Fort Lauderdale. And, um, you know, I was a Florida girl. Like, I had seen snow once. Um, and when I was in high school, like, I worked really hard. I wanted to not be a Florida girl anymore. Um, I got into Carnegie Mellon and decided to be a business major because, you know, honestly, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I figured, like, business maybe could lead to fashion. I, I honestly didn't really know what jobs existed in the fashion industry other than this concept of being a fashion designer, and I wasn't sure that I had the artistic skills to be a fashion designer. So I got into Carnegie Mellon. I had to move up to Pittsburgh and experienced my first winter ever, um, which is kind of daunting. Um, maybe you guys had an opposite experience coming to beautiful, sunny Stanford um, from a place that was cold and snowy. Um, but, you know, for me, like, I couldn't, I had to buy a whole new wardrobe, and I couldn't do that in South Florida. Um, you know, even if I had the disposable income to be able to go to the mall and buy everything brand new, 
there isn't winter wear or even like autumn wear in the malls in South Florida in the summertime. And so I started going to thrift stores and looking for winter wear for the first time, and I found a lot of amazing stuff. And like I think that was kind of the moment when I sort of started to become an entrepreneur, like that like seed started to grow. Like I was just like, I can't pass up these beautiful pieces of clothing. I know they're worth so much more than they, you know, are kind of marked at just sitting here. Like maybe this was like my innate merchant coming out. Um, and I just, I found myself buying stuff even if it didn't fit me. And I would kind of say like, oh, like I'll give it to a friend or I will use the buttons for a craft project, which would never happen. Or I'll learn to sew and I'll tailor it to fit me, which also has not happened. I still don't know how to sew. That's okay. Um, but I was, I was bringing all this stuff home, like trash bags and trash bags full of it. And I started dating this guy around the same time. Um, he was, um, his, my, his name is Eric. He's my husband today. He's my co-founder at ModCloth. And he had actually started a web hosting business with two of his friends in high school. I would say he is more of that born entrepreneur, like thinking about running a business from, you know, age four or whatever, like as soon as he could talk and kind of think about what he wanted to do. So he had this web hosting business. He'd built a few e-commerce sites. Like, think about it. This is like 2000, 2001. It was sort of like, we're these like young, smart kids. Like, let's help you get on the interwebs. Like, they would go around to local business owners in the South Florida area and kind of pitch them on, like, we'll help you get, you need a website to like make your small business bigger. And so he had some experience and he was actually the one that suggested that I build a website and sell some of these products that I was finding, this like one-of-a-kind, these one-of-a-kind vintage pieces. And I thought that it sounded like a fun challenge. I mean, quite honestly, I also thought, hey, if I sell some of this stuff, that means that I get to buy more stuff, which sounds really cool. Um, And it's, you know, again, like thinking back to that time, right? Like, there weren't really any other options. Like eBay was an option, but I wasn't really finding designer goods and I didn't really think I could like build a brand on eBay. It seemed like if I was gonna do it, I wanted to be able to control the kind of more of the customer experience and more of the shopping experience. And you know, there wasn't Etsy, there wasn't, you know, any of these like easy to start up shopping carts. There was no Instagram to sell on. Like when I think about the entrepreneurs that are starting today, it's like, all you really need is a mobile phone and an Instagram account, and you can be connected to, you know, you can be a tastemaker to a group of people that kind of look up to you and think that you have good taste. Um, it, was, it was different then, which is kind of crazy. I mean, I still consider myself, like, very young, and I'm still, like, learning and kind of exploring the world. But then when I think back to when I started my business, like, there was no iPhone. There was no Facebook. Like, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> And so I, I was gifted a digital camera for my high school graduation gift. It was my first digital camera. It was like kind of like a brick. And I used that digital camera, and I used you know, this, all these kind of leftovers that I was finding when I was thrifting to launch the website. I also taught myself Photoshop. I taught myself some web design. I think I was using, like, God, like Microsoft front page. It's like something kind of embarrassing. Um, and my boyfriend helped me like hack an open source shopping cart. We used Interchange, which was like a Linux shopping cart, if anyone ever saw that floating around back in the day. 
And I spent that summer before I moved up to Pittsburgh, kind of like we incorporated and I bought the first set of inventory and I merchandised that inventory. Like I wrote all the descriptions, I thought of the names, I designed the site, I thought about like some of the user experience of the site, you know, as much as we could kind of change from this open source platform. And we launched in January of 2003. And um, we actually had a sale on our very first day. It was not someone I was related to or someone that I knew, which was very exciting. It kind of felt like magic. And I think like that was, so if like going into those thrift stores and seeing those products and seeing opportunity was the seed, like that was like the moment when I like, I feel like I became an entrepreneur. Like I was just like, wow, this is really cool. Like I can go out and find this stuff and I can like do all these things that I really like to do. And like people will pay me for it. Like that's pretty awesome. And if I could like, I was like just getting started in my college career and I was just thinking about, you know, the things, what I wanted to be as an adult and the things I wanted to study and the things I wanted to do. And I kind of had this like inkling of like, wow, if I could do my own thing, like that would be pretty special. That would be pretty amazing. So I ran the business part-time while I was at school. I continued to sell one-of-a-kind vintage. And, you know, it, it grew, it was like kind of fits and starts, you know, like some months it was really slow. We'd only have a handful of orders. I was doing whatever I could. I ended up being a double major. I double majored in business and in German. So I had like a pretty rigorous course load as well. But like on spring break, winter break, summers, like whenever I could, whenever I wasn't like, you know, doing other stuff that normal college kids do, like I just kept coming back to this. Like I, I loved it and I was getting better at it. And that was a really good feeling. Um, and so when I was approaching graduation in 2006, I, you know, kind of my junior, my senior year, I really started thinking about ModCloth as a legitimate career option. And it was a scary decision to have to make. Um, and one of the things that I intuitively did that I would recommend to all of you guys, and it's like been something that's been really powerful in my life, is like when you're making big decisions like this, and maybe it's obvious and you guys already do this, but you're make, if you're making big decisions, like sit down and really think about like what are the worst case scenarios and write them down and like get them out there. And you know, you won't get them 100% right, but like get comfortable with those. And then, you know, then you can go ahead and make your decision. That's always helped me. And this was definitely what I was doing at this time in my life. You know, I was thinking about like, wow, if this doesn't work, like I'm going to be behind my peers. Like I haven't gotten, you know, I was like kind of making these decisions of like, do I spend the summer working on the business or do I try to get an internship? Like, where do I devote my time? And that's like the eternal question for, I mean, everyone, but particularly for entrepreneurs, where do I devote my time? Um, that question will never go away. But I, you know, I, I, I really, I sat down and I said, okay, like, if I don't, if I don't get a job, like, maybe, you know, people will look at me and say, like, wow, like, what was she doing? She didn't get a job right out of college. Like, it's all these things. Maybe I won't be able to pay my student loans. Worst case scenario, like, maybe I will go bankrupt. I'm young. I don't have a family. That's okay. You know, like, I, I like, put that all out there and really thought about it. And, you know, it's, it's scary, but at least, like, you know what you're scared of versus just, like, being afraid of, like, the unknown. So in, 2000, in 2005, 2006, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the business model. Like, I knew if I wanted to, I knew that we had a lot of traffic. I knew that, um, like, 
new things that were happening on the web, like Facebook, you know, like I was a student at the time, so I was one of the first people to use it. Um, you know, I, I saw the power of not just building an online retailer, but really building a community and, and allowing, like, I, I, I realized that part of why customers were drawn to ModCloth was not just the fashion, but it was because they were similarly minded individuals, similarly, similarly minded women. And I saw this opportunity to build a community, to build a lifestyle, to build something that was more than just about fashion. Um, and that spoke to that spoke to customers and that empowered them to be actually part of the process, right? Like, Facebook isn't fun if your friends aren't on it. In the same way, like, I thought that I could build a retailer that would actually allow you to meet new people, meet new, new like-minded people, get style inspiration, get style advice from not just, like, a fashion company, but from other individuals. There's also the rise of personal bloggers and celebrity bloggers and kind of like everyone was gaining an audience. And I saw this opportunity to build my brand and to gain an audience from ModCloth. And so I was, I was thinking a lot about the business model. I was thinking about all this stuff that was happening at the time. And I saw the opportunity to, you know, not, I knew that I had to move away from one of a kind vintage pieces. Like it's not scalable. It's not a great customer experience either. You know, everything is like in one color and in one size. Um, but I really had no idea where to start. Like I wasn't a fashion person. I was based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, not necessarily the most fashionable city in the world at Carnegie Mellon, which isn't really a school that has, you know, a lot of people. Like I was starting to meet entrepreneurial mentors, but I didn't really have anyone that, in my life that had retail experience at that time. Um, but I was eventually able to find, um, to find independent designers and to really make the business um, start to look like what it looks like today, which is you know, this mix of products that, you know, some of them have a direct vintage inspiration, but really like all fashion is vintage inspired in some way or another, because you know, it's like whether it's a dress from the 40s that then was reinterpreted in the 80s that then is reinterpreted today. And it's just, you know, hemlines are longer, shorter. Um, shoulder pads get bigger and tinier and kind of move to different spots. The silhouette changes, but it's all inspired in some way. So I, I, I was able to kind of take this, um, this business that started in, you know, in my parents' living room and eventually moved into this was this photo here um, in 2006 was our first like official fulfillment center um, and then looking at today like we're in a 200,000 square foot fulfillment center in Pittsburgh you know like I said we're shipping two million orders last year um, you know it's we've come a long way but another lesson that I've learned as an entrepreneur is that you know part of that drive will like that that um, really drives you to start things will never let you be satisfied um, so it's really important as an entrepreneur i think to like work to work on the practice of like celebrating your wins and like taking a moment to step back and saying like wow we've actually come a long way because um, i look at this and i'm like okay we've come a long way but we still have, I still have such high aspirations for the brand. I have such high aspirations for the business. We still have such a long way to go. Um, and that's been like an important learning for me is like, how do, you, how do you make it sustainable? How do you like celebrate these wins, but still keep that drive to want to get bigger and better? So 
I'm still excited to get bigger and better. Um, I'm still learning tons of lessons along the way. And one of the biggest ones that I've learned thus far is that, you know, it's okay to be, you know, I'm kind of calling it like it's okay to be a rookie. Like it's okay to kind of not know what you're doing. Um, It's okay to come at problems from a really um, kind of like rookie mentality. And that can actually be, um, it's not just okay, but it can actually really be an advantage. And I think that, you know, as I look back at my career and like my story at ModCloth, I think that it absolutely was an advantage for us in a lot of ways. Um, Like I said, like we weren't retail veterans like we didn't come from retail families like this is a photo of me with our first delivery of you know non-vintage merchandise like peeking over those boxes like oh my god what am I going to do with all these boxes next this is like literally you can kind of tell literally in our college house Um, and you know like when I was going through this process like back in this like really formative time like 2005 2006 and thinking about making this a real business like I literally had to Google, like, where do I find wholesale clothing? Like, I didn't, I didn't know where to go and who to ask. And, you know, it eventually, like, all my Googling eventually led me to, like, some of the major fashion trade shows. And I kind of, like, bought a ticket to Las Vegas and went to these trade shows and, like, walked in without knowing what to expect. And, you know, like, I thought maybe it's going to be this, like, glamorous thing. I mean, you hear about a fashion trade show. It sounds like maybe it's going to be kind of cool. Um, In reality, this is what it actually looks like. You're in the Las Vegas Convention Center. You're walking through. You know, it's kind of concrete. There's no windows. So this was what I walked into, you know, with this kind of rookie mentality. Um, And I think the fact that I did just go in and, like, asked a ton of questions and was, like, you know, like, I literally asked about... Everything. I mean, I probably, honestly, was like asking some dumb questions. Like, I was like, if I buy this, how many do I have to buy? And when will you ship it to me? And when will I pay you? And like some of these things that, um, you know, usually you know by the time you get to this level. Um, And, you know, what I learned about the trade shows, like, really quickly, right, is like the buyers go there, they walk the floor. Like, everyone from, you know, small retailers like ModCloth was at the time to like the big department stores. They walk the floor, they look at the designers, the designers all bring samples that they're hoping to put into production. They see how many buyers are interested in the samples, and then they go back and they make some bets, and they say, okay, this is, you know, we have some pre-orders for these, and, like, these things people were kind of interested in, so this is where we're going to, you know, kind of place our bets and, like, place our production orders. And so what I realized really quickly in 2006, 2007, as I was starting to like build out our designer portfolio and move away from this one-of-a-kind vintage model, was that a lot of the items that I really loved weren't getting made. And so what I'd hear from the designers is like, oh, but Nordstrom bought this one. Don't you want this one? This one will get made. And of course, I didn't want the item that Nordstrom bought, even if it was a great seller for Nordstrom, because I needed differentiated, cool product for my customer. So, you know, I kind of, like, I asked some rookie questions. Like, I was like, hold on, you guys have all of these samples here, and you're showing them to us, and, like, just because I'm the only one that likes them, like, sometimes half of the items that we were finding at these trade shows weren't getting made. Like, we had a really big fallout rate. So, yeah, I asked some of these questions. You know, I said, we have all these samples here. Like, I have all these customers that I can talk to, like, immediately. I don't have to you know, 
wait six months and then walk out onto a sales floor like the traditional brick and mortar guys do. Um, why can't, if you have these samples here, you've already gone through the cost of making the sample. Can I just take those samples and see, maybe my customers will really love it. Maybe I can help you get to that. You know, usually depending on the item, it's like a 100 to 600 minimum production order. So maybe I can help you get to that. So I can, I can like guarantee my order and I can give you some real customer feedback. This led to our Be the Buyer program, which we launched in 2009. This is kind of like a quick snapshot of the concept. But it really came from this like rookie mentality of like, why not? Why can't we do this? Um, and I think like some people in the fashion industry kind of had this reaction of like, but that's your job as a buyer. Like that's the thing that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go out there and like kind of, you know, make your educated guess of what the customer will like. Um, but from my perspective, I was like, if I don't have to take that risk and I can actually engage my customers and let, her, let them let her be part of the process, like, wouldn't that be much better for everyone? Um, for our independent designers as well, like, this was giving them direct customer feedback rather than just getting, traditionally they just heard from the buyers whether why the buyers like something or not. Um, so giving them this like, actual feedback from customers was a really innovative thing at the time. And this was a really important part of our growth. Like we were able to, for one, like get more items that we actually needed. Like I said, like half of the items were falling out at the time. And this was like the core of, um, you know, this like launched the core of our, our, our core tenant at our company that the, we should really be empowering the community to help us make these decisions, even these decisions that traditionally are made internally um, at traditional fashion retailers. I think that it's important. So in telling this whole story, like, I think it's also important as entrepreneurs um, to kind of keep in mind that fake it till you make it is totally valid, like that concept, but it's just one of many tools in your toolbox. And that's something that I've found as I've looked back at my career and, you know, as I think about what I would share with my younger self. Um, I think that often we try to, like, just fake it till we make it all the time. And I think part of it is kind of the culture, like, especially in the entrepreneurial world, like, you're just, you're always, you know, you're just like, yes, of course I can do this. Of course we'll be able to hit these numbers. Of course we'll be able to, you know, we know what our plans are going to be one year from now, two years from now, five years from now. And, you know, that's totally fine. And, like, sometimes you really do have to do that. Like, when you're, when you're pitching your business, when you're talking to investors, like, absolutely fake it till you make it. Um, but I think that sometimes, like, if you get too caught up in this mentality, like, you can, I, I would caution you to resist, like, faking it, because you might miss opportunities to actually find your own path. And you might miss these opportunities to kind of put your hand up and say, like, why are we doing it this way? Why is it happening this way? Does this actually make sense? Um, and this has been a really valuable lesson for me. OK, one last word on being a rookie. I will tell everyone out here, um, you know, don't be afraid to go into an industry that you don't know anything about. 
I'll say like, look at this girl, if she can go on to be the creative lead of a you know, well-loved multi-million dollar fashion brand, like you can do it too. Um, even, you know, even if you're not raised in it, it's not like in your blood or whatever, um, I think that I am living proof that if you're passionate about something, like you can create your own kind of your own place in that world. Okay, so this leads very well to my next lesson, which is that it's okay to look back and cringe. I'm definitely putting those pictures up. Makes me cringe a little bit, not going to lie. I think this has been a really important lesson for me as a creative entrepreneur. Um, I think especially as you start out in your career, it can be really scary to be vulnerable and to put your work out in the world. You want everything to be 100% perfect. And I don't think this is just, you know, when I say creative, I mean, like, I'm definitely, I spend a lot of my job and a lot of my time thinking about aesthetics and thinking about, you know, design and these sorts of things. But I think this is just as applicable to, you know, if you're a coder or whatever you're doing, whatever type of product you're building, like, when you're starting out in your career, you are not going to be good. And you are hopefully going to get better, which means that you're going to look back and your tastes are going to be better and you're going to know so much more and you're going to cringe on your earlier work. So you have to just like get out there and do stuff. Um, This is one of my favorite quotes by the author Neil Gaiman. Like, if you're making mistakes, it means you're out there doing something. And I think it can be hard sometimes, right? Like you want to just like, you want to wait until it's absolutely perfect. And I'm not advocating by any means that you should, you know, not care very much about what you do and not have like real attention to detail. But I think that this, like having this permission of like, you know, no matter what, I'm going to get better and I'm going to look back and cringe on my earlier work, I think is really freeing. Um, so it's something that, you know, it's, it's one of those lessons that's like easy to listen to and maybe to understand intellectually and it's harder to actually put to work in your life as an entrepreneur. It's something I'm still trying to work on. Um, And it can be tough, quite honestly, to find that balance of like having that attention to detail and not wanting to release anything until it's perfect and just getting it out there and like knowing that it's going to change and you're going to move on and you're going to look back and you're going to cringe one way or the other. So let's just take a moment. I will show you my look back and cringe. Um, This is the first version of ModCloth. This is our first logo. I think it's very clearly designed by a 17-year-old who's just learned Photoshop. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, but this doesn't mean that, like, like I was really proud of this thing when we released it. Um, You know, I spent time on it, and I was thoughtful, and, you know, I thought that this, like, embodied my brand, and I thought that bevel looked really cool. Um, but I look back on it now, and it's, it's cringeworthy. This is the next version of the site. This was 2005, 2006. We'd switched to a new, um, another like open source like Linux-based shopping cart. Um, but again, it was like I had taken a few design classes. It was like starting to get a little better, but like this is some of the content that we were producing around that time. Um, I look back at it, and I'm like, oh my god, oh. It's horrible, but I, if I hadn't done it, if I hadn't put it out there, I wouldn't be where I am today. This is um, kind of circa 2007, 2008. 
starting to come along, you're starting to see some of the like kind of more of the hallmarks of the ModCloth brand that you see today, for those of you that are familiar with the brand. Um, and you're starting to see more of like our kind of playful, quirky aesthetic come through. But, you know, again, I look back at this, you know, in the work that I do today, and I'm like, yikes, you know? And like I said, it is, it is about having this, you know, this is where we're at today, and it's having this permission to, to be okay with the fact that, you know, in 10 years you'll look back and, like, you'll be proud of what you did, but hopefully you're going to be better and you're going to be past that stage in your career and your life, and you're going to be, you know, on to greater and better things. So the way that we think about like this philosophy and like putting it into practice today at ModCloth is, um, you know, in one way, like thinking about the concept in, in our um, product development on the technology side of a minimum viable product. And, you know, I'm sure you guys are probably familiar with this type of concept. You know, it's like, think about what's the minimum that I need to put this out into the world and get user feedback on it. Um, so an example, like a more recent example for us at ModCloth is our style gallery. Like this is a feature that we built and we launched on our site in 2012. And like the two goals are, you know, let our customer come and upload outfit photos and like browse those outfit photos and get inspired and love them and kind of, um, you know, build the community in that way. And then the second goal was to make those outfit photos shoppable. And this was the first version that we rolled out. You know, we worked really hard on it. We felt really good about it. But, you know, as soon as we got it out there to our users, we saw that she knew, she realized that she should browse and she got the inspiration part of it, but she did not get the shopping part at all. You know, so we iterated, like, released um, many new versions, like lots of small iterations. Um, we found that just, like, adding this uh, magnifying glass on the mouse over told her that she could actually click in and shop. So it's like these little things. And you know, even though the first version of our style gallery failed, right? Like we wanted it to do two things and it only did one of those things. We didn't view it as a failure. Like we got something out there and we learned. And you know, if we had waited to like make it 100% to like like if we weren't diligent on really thinking about like what is that minimum viable product to get out there and to get feedback, um, we would have probably spent a lot of time like running in a different direction. Because once you actually get things in front of your community, in front of your users, like that's where you get the feedback that actually matters. And you know, I think for us and for our brand, like the fact that our customers were able to you know, be part of this experience of iterating, like she tells us what she likes and what she doesn't, and then she actually sees that we listen and that we make changes. Um, that's really empowering to our customers. And that's like, that empowerment is more than just retail. It's more than just transaction. Like that is part of the, I think, emotional core of what has made ModCloth successful. And I think what's made ModCloth like loved by our community as a brand. And that's the kind of the final thing that I really want to talk about today is that the emotional core of what you do, like the purpose of what you do as an entrepreneur, is really important, and that's really what endures. I think part of this is, you know, it's not just external. It's not just that the emotional core of what you do 
connects your customers to you, um, but it's internal as well. Like your purpose is what connects your team to the work. It's what makes you know employees like an actual team, an actual company. It makes it's what makes everyone move in the same direction. And I think that you know at ModCloth, like our purpose is really defined on understanding our audience. Like we know that. You know, if you ask women, this study showed that 96% of women say that what the, they say that they agree with the statement that what you wear affects how you feel, right? And that's more than dresses, like it's more than just a transaction. And like being able to connect to that, I think has been like externally and internally has been one of, most, one of the most valuable things that we've done as a company. So Understanding, so it's important to understand your audience. And I, I feel like there are, I, when I've talked to other entrepreneurs about this, you know, I hear like, what if I'm in a B2B business? I'm not dealing with an audience like yours that has this sort of, you know, emotional need for product. But it's not just about, like I said, it's not just about external, it's about internal as well, right? And I think like, when you think about companies that are that really endure um, and that people love and people love working at, it's having a purpose that's more than just like we're going to grow quickly and we're going to make money. Like you need to think about, and I have not come across a business yet that doesn't have some sort of emotional core that doesn't make people's lives better in some way that doesn't serve some purpose, even if you are. B2B, like you're helping those other employees, the other employees of those other businesses be more efficient, do better at their jobs. Like there is an emotional core there, and I think that getting to it is really important. This is ours at ModCloth. We're committed to inspiring personal style and helping our customers feel like the best versions of themselves. And, you know, it's, it's different from... You know, I'd say it's different from the rest of the fashion industry in that you know, we're encouraging our customers to be themselves and to be the best versions of themselves. Like, we're not saying you have to become this like, idealized like, mod cloth version. We're just saying like, we'll help you be the best version of who you are. And this is really powerful. Like, this is what our, this is what our customers see from the rest of the fashion industry. Like, each of these images is actually taken from a different retailer's campaign. I mean, you see them next to each other and they, they look pretty similar, I think. Um, and there's nothing wrong with these images. Like, they're beautiful and there's, I mean, there's like lots of good things to say about them. Um, but for me, like, I'm a customer and I look at them and I don't, I don't see myself here. Like, I don't feel like I necessarily belong. And this is an image from one of our most recent swim campaigns at ModCloth. Um, this actually, this campaign went viral. It was written about around the world. Um, we decided to photograph our employees in one of our best-selling swimsuits. It's a swimsuit that we carry in a broad range of sizes and that we've carried for years and years. Um, it has like thousands of reviews from customers of all age ranges and shapes and sizes that say that they love it. And this is really powerful. I mean, like you look at this and like, 
mean, I think this is a message in branding as well. Like if you, or this is a message, this is a lesson in branding as well, right? Like if you look at these images, even though they're from different retailers, they kind of blend together. This image is different, right? And it's important that like your business aesthetically kind of stands out as well. Um, but emotionally, it stands out too, right? Like this is a different message. This is saying women look different and that's okay. It's something that can be celebrated and that we can be happy about. And it's also, um, it's like, this is the most vulnerable time for a woman, probably, when she's wearing a swimsuit. Like, that's what we hear from a lot of our customers. And it's saying, like, hey, you don't, it doesn't have to be that way. It's okay. And so I think this, this emotional, like I said, like, this is our emotional core for our business for all of you, like whether you're starting businesses, you're already an entrepreneur, if you're, you know, just like you want to take these, an entrepreneurial mindset to a bigger company, like think about the emotional core of what you do, like it really is important. Um, it's a lesson that I've, you know, I learn all the time, like we get this incredible emotional outpouring from our customers because they see what we do for them, how we speak to them. And we see it on Facebook, we see it on Twitter, we see it internally on our site. And like for me, this is this is the like this is the thing that I'm most proud of when I talk about like what I've built at ModCloth. And you know, I think if you can find something that you love to do that is, you know, financially viable, right? Like you gotta get paid for it. Um, and that also emotionally connects with other people, that makes other people's lives better in some way, that is really powerful. And that's something that's like worth getting out of bed for. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, like, I think that you have to have, I think in some ways, like, you have to have that drive because there's going to be some days when you need something to get you out of bed. Like, it won't be easy. And this emotional core is also what gets you through tough times, right? And I think that, you know, a lot of times in the entrepreneurial world, like, we don't talk about what it's actually like to go through tough times. Like, I feel like you hear a lot of the kind of overnight success stories. And, like, I've had that story written about me in various ways, you know, like I've been on a lot of those 25 under 25 and 30 under 30 lists and, you know, like entrepreneur does this great thing and has like built this incredible business. Um, and I'll say like, at least from my perspective and like from the other entrepreneurs that I've met and I've learned about that concept of like an overnight success story just does not exist. There's always something more to it. And it's never just like, flowers and rainbows. Um, and then I, I feel like on the opposite end of the spectrum, like you do hear about, I'll just pull one out of the sky, like you hear about something like pets.com, where it's like, oh, crazy explosion, implosion, however you want to describe it. Um, but you don't hear as much about the stuff in between, like the actual, like, what is it like to weather hard times? Um, and I've been through that, like the last... 12 months at ModCloth were not the easiest time of my life. And part of why I want to talk about it is because I do think that you don't hear other entrepreneurs talking about it very much. And I do think it's like 
part of it is the kind of the culture in the same way that I was talking about, like we feel like we have to fake it till we make it. That's a tool and it's not something that you have to do all the time. And I think that, um, yeah, often like, you know, when you're in the valley or wherever you're at, like you, as entrepreneurs, you start to equate like kind of your personal success and your personal worth with your business's success and your business's worth. And I think that that is, there's no way to kind of get around that when you're starting out because it is just you and you're, you know, or it's you and like a very small group of people and you're putting so much of yourself into the business. But as the business grows and as you, I mean, if your goal is to actually add more people, um, you know, it, it isn't just you anymore. And I think that's like an important lesson that founders have to learn is it's not just going to be you. Um, and that's like for the good times and the bad times, like the good times, it's your team. In the bad times, it's you and your team as well. Um, and that can be, again, it's one of those lessons that I think is probably easier to understand intellectually than to actually like put in practice in your life. And, you know, for me, over the last 12 months at ModCloth, like kind of the long story short, it's like we grew really quickly. Um, we had to make some tough decisions in the business because we were at a point where we'd grown quickly. We weren't able to support our burn rate anymore. And, you know, this purpose was what got me through making those decisions and like having those times where it's hard to get out of bed and it's hard to go to work. That's another thing that's hard to face as a founder when you know, you've created your own job and you don't wanna to go to that job, that's a tough place to be in. And I think if you don't have this purpose, if you don't have something that's deeper, that's pulling you back to it, um, it'll be all but impossible. So, you know, for us, like I said, like we had to make some hard decisions. Like we had to lay people off last year and it was the hardest thing I have ever done professionally. And, you know, quite honestly, like I felt, I spent a lot of last year kind of personally feeling like a failure and that's a tough place to be in. And again, like this purpose was what brought me back to, okay, even though I'm feeling this way, I can step outside, I can look at this, I can look at my business, and I know that my business is a success because my business has this purpose, my business has this, um, you know, this thing that it's doing. Like, this is real, and we're making a real difference in people's lives. And having this brought me through that time. It also brought our company through that time. Like, this was what our team rallied around. And it wasn't easy. Like I said, like we had to make some hard decisions to set our business up for success and set our brand up for the future. And you know, we decided to really focus on the things that we did better than anyone else in the world. That was thinking about building community and taking, like engaging with that community and creating products and creating innovative social experiences that they would love and that they would respond to. And having that focus and having like this purpose to kind of drive that focus enabled us to, you know, kind of look forward and start thinking about the future. 
And as we started thinking about the future of mod cloth, like in the last like 12 months or so, you know, we knew that that involved taking the brand to the next level. Part of that is thinking about what a physical presence means for mod cloth and what that would look like. And you know, whether that's pop-ups or fit shops or guide shops or some combination of them, um, brick and mortar stores, we knew that was where we wanted to go. We also knew that we needed to work on our own proprietary product. So thinking about designing things that she couldn't find anywhere else because we know our customer best and we know what will fit her and we have all this like great data on what works for her. So in order to do that, we actually decided to hire a new CEO, someone who had retail experience and who had kind of done all of those things, had brick and mortar experience, um, understood proprietary brands. Um, and our new CEO started in January. His name is Matt. And you know, since January, we've actually already launched our first fit shop, our first fit pop-up. Um, we did this in LA about a month ago, and it was incredible. Like we had customers, community members lining up around the block, um, hundreds of them, some of them waiting for hours to actually get in and be able to try on our products and interact with each other and interact with the brand. And you know, I've all of this is possible, you know, like moving forward, thinking about the future of mod cloth because of that core and that purpose. And I think like it's part of why I'm so passionate about sharing this message with other entrepreneurs. Because I, I feel like it's it's easy to think about like there's just this kind of list of things that I need to do as an entrepreneur and I need to just check them off and I need to go to business. I need to do this. I need to do that. And I'm not sure that like this concept is on that like well-known list. Um, this concept of like find your purpose and find what you're doing. Um, and I'd like it to be there. I also don't think that the check off the list is like actually a thing that people should be doing. Um, like I said, like, I feel like all entrepreneurs have different stories and like come from different backgrounds and kind of approach it in different ways. But I do think this is one thing that like every business in order to really like know where it's going in order to weather rough times um, and to be headed in the right direction in good times. Like this is probably like the most important thing that I would leave you guys with. And I would love to answer some questions. Um, thank you for having me here today. Oh, so the question was, um, it's okay to look back and cringe, but sometimes you find that... Yeah, the, the, maybe the naive version actually fits yeah, the, yeah, that the naive version is better for a certain age group or like for a certain customer. Um, so I, I think I see what you mean, and I, I do think there's definitely some validity to... Um, like, I, I don't think it's about necessarily, like, looking back and saying, like, that wasn't 
cutting edge or that doesn't feel cutting edge because everything will feel stale, you know, kind of a few years into the future. Um, so I, I do think there's definitely validity to, you know, kind of, like, I feel like maybe what you're asking about is like a purposeful throwback or something that feels more, um, I don't know, kind of retro. Um, and I, I think that's totally valid. I do think, though, that, you know, if you, so if you feel good about what you're putting out into the world, um, like, part of the thing that I want to convey is, like, if you feel good about it, like, get it out there and don't just kind of sit on it and hold it in because you want to make it perfect because it'll never be perfect. But, yeah, I do think that there's, there's validity to looking back and saying, like, oh, well, this is actually great and it's, like, perfect again in this moment in time. Yes, in the back. You know, sort of filling a simple need, like as a small company, you really need consumers and you know that they want a product, and, um, and then being able to actually empower those consumers, like from fulfilling a simple need to like being able to empower your consumers and like contribute to that cycle. Yeah, so the question um, is about how, what, what was the transition for ModCloth from going from like a purely transactional relationship with our community to actually empowering them to be part of the process. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I do think a lot of that for ModCloth's story was timing for us. Um, like I said, uh, we were kind of, I was like thinking about taking the business to the next level at this time where Facebook was really gaining traction and like all this stuff on the social web was happening. Um, so for me, it like intuitively made sense that, you know, whatever business I was starting, like this had to be a part of it. Like I looked at the way, you know, I was using Facebook and the way my friends were interacting on Facebook. And it made sense to me that like, because my customers were probably pretty similar to me and my friends that they would want to interact in that way as well. Um, and not just with the brand, but with, you know, kind of each other on the website and giving them that opportunity was, was going to be something that would be not just um, you know, useful for us because we'd learn more about them, but it would actually be a brand differentiator. And I think the transition really was um, you know, around the time that we launched our Be the Buyer program, like having that kind of brainstorm of like, oh yeah, we could, let's ask our customers, let's get them involved, let's listen to them. Um, it really was this like confluence of what we were thinking about, what we were excited about, and what was happening in the market, like and in the broader like social world that allowed that to happen. Was that too vague, or does that answer your question? Cool. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know: Do you currently have your own designers? And also, I'd like to know: Are you buying and selling globally? And what's been your experience with that? Yes, so the question was if we have our own designers, which we do. Um, so that's definitely um, something that you know, we see as a big part of ModCloth's future and moving forward um, is doing more and more proprietary design. We release about 
150 designs a quarter right now that are coming from our own internal design team. Um, and we see that scaling quickly. Um, the other part of the question was whether we work with international designers globally and yeah, kind of what that, yeah, both buying and selling. So we do sell around the world. Our audience is mostly here in the US, um, but we do have like a fairly substantial following in Canada and Australia and like some of the other English speaking countries that you'd expect in like high English speaking countries. Um, we do work with designers based around the world and it can be, it's, incredible from a branding perspective, being able to introduce a designer to the US for the first time and bring them into a new market. Um, you know, it's great for their business too. And you know, for us, like, it's part of how we've become known as a place that you, know, you can find stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Um, but from a pure like, retail business perspective, it can definitely be a challenge. Um, you know, it's hard for designers that haven't worked with companies in the US before, you know, just like all of the actual logistics of like bringing product in and making sure it's like going to get through customs and going to be able to sell in the US. Um, it can be because we work with, we really, we really value independent design. So we work with a lot of independent designers and some of them are really great at design and not so good at logistics and some of the other parts of their business. So we have to kind of step in and fill that role. Does that answer your question? really a cluttered and it's really a competitive space and I know a lot of brands they go over and out you see the craziest campaigns but I'm just curious what was the one thing Mudblock did differently that got its early adopters? Yeah so the question was um, what did Modcloth do differently to get early adopters and I think, you know, when I think back to the real early adopters like people that were joining the brand in 2006 and 2007 what we did differently was really go where our customers were at a time when other fashion brands weren't thinking about those spaces. So being like one of the first brands um, to really build a fan page on Facebook um, for this audience, um, going to you know up and coming like celebrity gossip bloggers and personal style bloggers because we knew, you know, we even like we used to do a lot of advertising. We still do, but like. We do a lot of advertising with like cute blogs, so like blogs that post pictures of like bunnies and kitties and that sort of thing, which isn't fashion related, so it wasn't like entirely clear to the broader industry that they should go and find customers there. Um, but we knew, like I, I knew, because that's the stuff that I was interested in, and it was new and it was up and coming, and like my friends were interested in it. Um, so we were able to go and like find our customer where she was at, and I think um, that was definitely what really spoke to our early adopters. They looked at us and saw us as, you know, in some ways, like, we were early adopters as well. Like, we were the first to work with, um, you know, have partnerships with certain fashion bloggers and, like, be, you know, working with them to create great content that didn't feel like an ad, but, you know, talked about the brand and, like, got brand awareness out there. Susan, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.